And this series is looking at heart and soul. I think, imagine, what, what would you want to actually have written on your, your gravestone at the end of the days? What, what would you want? I, I guess we would have all sorts of ideas, maybe different things that would be important to us. But I think a lot of what we would want would be something kind of shaped around something like this. And it's a phrase that's used so often, he had a good heart. I think it's something that is, or she had a good heart. That's something which is, it's kind of bigger than all of the temporary things. It's looking into the real deep us. Heart is a fascinating subject. And the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus has a huge amount to say about our hearts. And it also speaks very, very powerfully into our culture today. Uh, and the reason I think it speaks really powerfully is I think we live in a world which is desperately looking for something bigger than just the run-of-the-mill thing. We're looking for something which is more than earning the next million or more than our day job. We're looking for something which touches us deep inside. It's just fascinating to look at the various kind of trending themes on, on Instagram. The pictures which capture something bigger than us and yet connect our inner being to that something. How many uh, travelogue Instagram threads are there or, or influencers? People who capture pictures of amazing places, which is not just designed for us to kind of stand back and look at and think, yeah, it's quite nice that actually. It's actually designed for us to, in some way, really deeply enter into, to capture, capture us deep inside. So I want us to think about that as we work through this. What is it that really captures, and how, this crucially, how do we judge what is worthwhile when it comes to that? The subject that we're opening up with this afternoon is uh, the subject of giving. It's the opening few verses. There's giving, there's prayer, and there's fasting, but we're just opening up with giving. Giving is a really interesting thing in our, in our culture today. Um, I, I decided to go onto Wikipedia, which is really, really interesting. Just quick search, philanthropy. Just, just look down the list of the great philanthropists, people who have given marvelously, incredibly. Do you know what? It is, in some ways, it is truly humbling to look on, on that list and to see how people have given in absolutely incredible ways. And I guess most of us would be looking at that list and thinking, well, it's actually, it's actually kind of relatively easy to give when you're giving from a wealth of $50 billion. That's relatively easy. You know, give away half your wealth and you're left with $25 billion. And that's kind of easy. I don't think it is. I don't think it is, not when you're there. But anyway, you know, that, that's just interesting. Uh, I was fascinated to find the general kind of focus 
of people's giving. Predominantly, health care, interestingly, health and well-being. Bill and Melinda Gates, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they've promised to give certainly more than 50% of their wealth into this foundation by the time they die. And they are totally focused on healthcare and particularly interested in the eradication of AIDS. Them and Warren Buffett have created this group which is encouraging people of vast wealth to give half of their wealth away. It's just, just amazing, isn't it? And then in the heading, you know the little heading in Instagram, not in Instagram, in um, Wikipedia, where it talks about, gives you a little bit of a detail, introduction, then it, it says, oh, and by the way, there is some level of criticism of philanthropy. Mm. A philanthropist may not always find universal approval for his or her deeds. Common accusations include supporting an unworthy cause, such as funding art instead of fighting world hunger, or having selfish motivation of heart, such as avoiding taxes or attaining personal fame. An attitude which may be true, but also, well, no. I think that attitude, it might be worthwhile to point the finger and ask questions about that kind of giving, but then at the same time, criticizing in that way can often be a little bit of a hint of our own jealousy because we can't give in that kind of way. Here's the thing, and the, the reason for that journey is this. Isn't our heart's motives really a hugely complex set of affairs? It is massively complex with mixed motives, with things that appear to be good but they're tinged with self-satisfaction, with things that seem to be so magnanimous and philanthropic but they might actually be about a whole load of other things. And even when we critique them, those of us who can't give in that way, we find that there is something in our heart that might be influencing our very criticism. The reason that I've gone through all of that journey is because, and I think the Bible really points to this, it says the true attitudes of our hearts are way more complex than face value. And it is not easy for us to be the judges. That says to me, that if we're truly going to engage with the Bible, we need to look for another judge of what is a good heart. And that's the journey that I want us to go on this afternoon. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at giving, we're going to look at forgiving, and we're going to look at focusing. Let's have a look at the way our subject opens up. Because this speaks right into the issue of philanthropy. First thing I want to see is this. Verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. What's going on here? Jesus, this is at the center, pretty much, of a long discourse or a long, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, 
generally. It's described as that. This long message which covers three chapters in the book of Matthew. I want you to picture the scene. How do we get under the skin of Jesus? How do we get to really understand who He is and what He's, what he's about? We listen to what He says. And that's what people were doing. He had, he had cre- created just upheaval in the area where He was. Huge, huge crowds of people had started to follow Jesus. Jesus isn't this kind of obscure person from history. Well, He wasn't then. He was creating upheaval in a fascinating location in the world. The, the, the kind of Israel area is a fascinating area. It, it's, it's in the trading routes of Europe and Asia and South Asia and into Africa. It's kind of it's right at the kind of fulcrum place. And so you had a huge amount of people coming and going through this area, traveling in different directions. It was a politically significant place. And Jesus is creating a storm. Huge numbers of people following Him. So Jesus goes out and He sees all of these people along with His disciples. And as He sees them, He takes this time on this mountain or this hillside and he stops and he pauses and he teaches them that's phenomenally important jesus isn't a nice idea a kind of cutesy historical figure that it's nice to attach to he says things which are challenging And when we listen to what he says, we're faced with questions. Do I embrace that? Do I live according to that? Do I reject it? Look at what he says. Because the first thing that he says is very powerful, and it's this. Caring for those in need is a righteous act. Caring for those in need is a righteous act. Jesus is not saying it's a good thing to do. A righteous act is filled with way more power than just a good thing to do. When Jesus uses the words righteous, He's saying this, caring for the needy is something which your Father in heaven recognizes as good in His judgment. And it reflects Him. That's what righteousness is. We could call righteousness God's goodness. And Jesus is saying, when you care for those in need, you are doing something which is not just shaped as a good thing because we think it is. It's shaped as a good thing because God defines it as being a good thing. That is, that's powerful, isn't it? It says for us today... Is it a good thing for us to do good things for the needy? Yes, of course it is. Not just because it seems a good thing to do, but because it is shaped by a God who reaches out to the needy and cares for them. Nietzsche, I think, if we really strip it back, didn't believe in this. 
He didn't believe in it because he would see the needy as the weak and therefore those who are kind of not going to progress human flourishing and therefore we should forget about them and focus only on those of worth. That's kind of evolutionary ideas at its very core. That's what Nietzsche eventually, if you kind of boil it down, that's what he said. We listen to that and we find that really horrible, don't we? Why is it horrible? Because actually the needy and caring for the needy and our innate knowledge that that is a good thing to do is shaped by a God who does that very thing. Not because we've just decided to be philanthropic, but because it's shaped by God. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying caring for others is a righteous act. The next thing that he says is that very act of caring can be self-serving or other-serving. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. That is, I don't know what that actually means. Well, I do. I know what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you give, don't make a fanfare about it, which is exactly where that phrase came from, incidentally. Don't make a fanfare of it. He's saying, give in a way which nobody knows. And I look around and I think, that, wow, that for us today, that's amazingly powerful. You look at all of the ways in which giving is celebrated today. And it is truly inspiring that there is so much giving going on. But even now we would say, there, is, there are those who, in, right deep down, we would say as we look at various situations, we say, well, I'm not sure why that person gave to that, you know, and that their, their name appears on that just giving page and all the rest of it, and they make a nice kind of statement about it and all the rest, and you can think, wow, we have such mixed motives. And Jesus puts his finger right on that, and he says, true, Righteous giving does not need any recognition from anybody else other than your Father in heaven. Why do we feel uncomfortable about that? I think it's because we're faced with the dilemma that we know that giving is good and we know that we want to be known to be good. <laughs> But actually, we don't believe enough that God sees it. We don't believe enough that satisfaction in His eyes, being seen to be righteous in His eyes, is enough in itself. So it can be self-serving or it can be other-serving. And the self-serving is the kick out of the trumpets that blast when we've given. Or the page that appears online when we've given. 
or whatever else it might be. But on the flip side, righteous acts with the right motive are rewarded by a father who looks on. Now, there's, there's, there's a balance for us to, to think about. Whose reward do I value the most? The accolade of those around me who see that I've given. Or the reward from a Father in heaven who knows that I've given. You think, what? How, how on earth? <laughs> that was a bit of a wrong use of words there. How on earth is God going to reward us? <laughs> Actually, God promises a reward for us eternally. He says, for those who live in this way, this isn't an empty thing that you're doing, but your reward is being in tune with me. Your reward and satisfaction is that I see it. I know it. I've stored it away. And you will be rewarded. Isn't that, isn't that tremendous? How can God reward every good deed by everybody who performs a righteous act truly before Him? How can He do that? The way that He can do that is because He is unlimited in what He can pour out. He's unlimited in what He can give. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your heavenly Father will see what is done in secret, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What is the theme that Jesus is really pointing his finger to here? He's basically trying to get us to see this. God truly sees the heart. He truly sees the heart. All of those potential mixed motives that we have, either when we give or when we observe others giving, actually, this says, God wipes all of that away. That is, that is irrelevant because he knows the heart. You know, I, I actually don't think something like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation could ever possibly be secret. It just couldn't, could it? They couldn't give away that wealth. I'm not, I am definitely not pointing the finger and saying because it's public, it's wrong. Not at all. What I am saying is that God knows the heart. And so huge giving like that, which has to be public by very definition, can truly be from the very best of hearts. And God knows. And equally, tiny giving, which is very public and has nothing to do with a desire for righteousness, but is actually about me being seen to be a good guy because I'm giving, I have already had my reward. And God doesn't see that at all. 
Isn't that a fascinating thing? Secondly, forgiving. Jesus uses prayer as a foundation for us to look at our attitude towards Him. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. And then a little bit later on, Verse 7, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. So you've got these two groups of people, bearing in mind that we're talking in a world which is absolutely in every way shaped by religion. Religious activity shapes every part of life. And you've got two groups of people who are using religious activity for self-service. The first group are the hypocrites who stand in the synagogue proclaiming really loud these wonderful, eloquent, beautiful prayers in front of everybody so that everybody can hear them and they've they've received all of their reward. All those pagans who babble on with lots of confusing words and they think they'll be heard because they use lots of words. You see, the first point I want to make about prayer is this. Authenticity is found in God-centeredness. Not in lots of words or bold public declarations, but in God-centeredness. Because in contrast, the most surprising of things, prayer which is unseen is not empty but a mark of genuine relationship tucked away between those two descriptions is verse 6 but when you pray go into your room close the door and pray to your father who is unseen then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you There's a real kind of conflict there. Jesus is saying, go and speak to the God who is not seen, and He will see you and will reward you. Isn't that fascinating? The way Jesus is using this clear set of clever words, clever in the sense of a short number of words to, to get across really big issues. We've got one group of people who think that being seen, publicly praying, is the very heart of what it's all about. Or another group who are seen to use lots of words, and that looks amazing. And Jesus says, no, go where you are not seen and believe that a God who you cannot see, sees you. Why is that central? Because Jesus is saying, I think at the very heart, it's this. It's an act of faith. It is believing in the privacy, in the nothingness of my room, with nobody seeing me, that when I am praying, God 
my Father in heaven is truly, truly hearing me. That's faith. That, that, that is faith. Hebrews 12 verse 1, believing in what is not seen. That's faith. It's saying true faith is not in clever words. It's in believing that God is truly with me. And that kind of faith opens up a recognition of God, a dependence on God, and forgiveness from God. Because he then goes on and says, when you pray, pray like this. And we we probably know it reasonably well. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is on earth as it is in heaven. That's us saying, in the nothingness of my room, when nobody sees me, I believe that God is this. And I believe that His righteousness and His goodness will be delivered in the world. That's the kind of God who I am speaking to. Secondly, He says, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is a really strange kind of thing. Look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus says, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then He says, now go go away and pray for the things that you need. (laughs) Hey? Why do that? Why do I ask for the things that I need when my Father in heaven already knows that I need them? Because it's another statement of faith. It's a way of saying, I am absolutely, completely, and utterly dependent on you for everything. We live in a world which struggles to come to terms with that because we have so much at our fingertips, seemingly under our control. We feel as though we've got it under our control. And so we fail to pray, give us today our daily bread. The reality is that we are constantly on a knife edge of existence. So many things could wipe out our current existence in so many ways. The world could change overnight. And so for us to pray, give us today our daily bread, in the 21st century, when it feels like I have got a pantry full of food, (laughs) is just a statement of faith. I am dependent on you every day of the week. And the reason that I am dependent on you is because it is you that I come to for forgiveness. Look at how he concludes it. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. That statement of, there are so many places that I could go There is so much that I could do which I know is not shaped by your righteousness. I need today, tomorrow, the next day, your hand on me 
so that I do not head off in the wrong direction. Do we understand the, the, the seriousness of that in a world with so many temptations around us that we are totally, totally dependent on our Father in Heaven's hand upon us so that we do not stray? That is faith again. When we have that kind of attitude, when we have that kind of realization, the next sentence makes sense. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's quite simply like this. And probably something that our culture really needs to hear because we hold on to grudges and griefs so easily. And it's this. When I realize how much I have been forgiven, it becomes easy to forgive others. Easier. It becomes easier to forgive others. That's why Jesus says, you need to pray for two things. You need to pray that you would, our debts would be forgiven. Forgive us our debts. And you also need to be able to pray and also have forgiven our debtors. We have also forgiven our debtors. Can we do that? Are we able to say as we have forgiven our debtors? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I, I find that really hard. In fact, in human terms, it is impossible to do because I will hold on to those debts so much and I only can let go of them when I realize how much I have been forgiven. And then we come finally to this idea of fasting. So we've had giving, we've had prayer, and now we've got fasting. I've called it giving, forgiving, and focusing. Fasting is a fascinating subject. Pretty much throughout the ancient world, all, most religions had a heritage of fasting. What's even more interesting is that since 2010, online searches for fasting has increased by 10,000%. That is interesting. Fasting is a really interesting subject for us today. I think that 9,999% of that increase is self-serving fasting. So I, if you're into intermittent fasting, I wish I could do it. It would be really good if I could learn to do it well. And it, great health benefits and all of that kind of stuff, apparently. Don't use that. Don't quote me, don't go to a doctor and said, well, said it's okay to intermittently fast. It's supposed to be great. But that's not what this fasting is about. This is a different kind of fasting which is also interesting to our culture. It's a moment where we pull away from the things that we feel as if we depend on to be focused on something bigger than us. 
That's the kind of fasting that is at work here. In a culture where food was the primary resource and it was scarce, comparatively speaking, to actually withdraw from that, to focus outside of my immediate needs on the God who I love is a powerful, powerful thing to do. I think we could spend a week, a month, a few years, maybe not, we could spend a huge amount of time thinking about how we should fast today in our culture. What are we dependent on that takes up our time, takes up our thinking, takes up our, our, motion, our emotional resource in such a way that it would be good for us to temporarily break away from it so that we might think about something else bigger than us. But look at the way even fasting can be self Serving. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Look at me. Look at how holy I am. I'm feeling really awful. I haven't eaten since before the sun rose this morning. It's now... Ten hours further on, look how drained I look. I must be incredibly holy. Or alternatively, we could say, just send out a tweet. I am going to be off Twitter for the next 48 hours because I am setting aside some time to be spiritually connected. And in 48 hours' time, we come back and we say, that was an amazing spiritual experience. It's so good to be off Twitter for 48 hours. And then we get a thousand retweets. And we go, boom. That is exactly what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying that very act of being focused on me has become totally self-serving and you've received your reward already because you actually didn't care a jot about true relationship with me. You never really set aside that time to truly be connected with me. You were more concerned that other people knew that you were becoming connected with me. Your heart was not why you said it was. As we begin this series... All I hope I've done is pointed a finger at the complexity of our hearts, at the mess that we've got, and I want to encourage you by saying this. True joy, true satisfaction, true fulfillment is only ever eternally found when our hearts are in tune with the God who made us. So our giving is because we know what we have received from Him. Our forgiving is because we know that we have received it from Him. And our separating aside from the things of this world are truly because we want to be close to Him for a while. That is where our hearts 
find true, lasting satisfaction. And anything outside of that will leave us empty.